which no doubt contextualized. Now I use the I use the you know he capitalizing on the capitalization. I use the capitalization because Craig Carter uses the moniker "Great Tradition" to describe the 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 majority orthodox thought pattern concerning things like theology proper, metaphysics, and the hermeneutics uh, for scripture. Uh, interpreting scripture, the great tradition, is one of uh, Dr. Carter's, like, one of his most hard-hitting volumes. Um, and so that's the reason I use that term, is to link that with Craig Carter. ...and enabled the Reformation and its post-Reformation posterity to do precisely what they did. Let me stop them. No one is denying that Aquinas and his work was vitally important in the definition of the pre-Reformation period and hence had influence upon all the reformers. Nobody denies that. All of scholasticism did. But there was also a great deal of pushback against scholasticism by the reformers, and especially an appropriate re, uh, okay, reigniting, since that was used here, reigniting of biblical sources over against the philosophical and speculative sources. Now, Various of the writers, Luther, Calvin, all the rest, were influenced one way or another in regards to especially categories that were not necessarily part of the battle of the Reformation itself. And later generations would have to go back and go, well, what if they had gone this way? And what if the influence had been this way? So on and so forth. But what made the Reformation, what gave the Reformation power was not a Thomistic uh, theistic system. What ignited, what ignited. And of course, I never made that claim. I never made the claim that it was a Thomistic system that gave the Reformation power. I said that it was the classical theism, which I believe to be biblical, and which everyone in you know, league with myself and others believes to be biblical. This is obviously not something that is antithetical to the text in our thinking. This is not something that's in addition to the text that the text is totally silent on. This is something that is uh, is either assumed or even explicitly revealed about God in the text or made necessary about God in the text of Scripture. It's a mixed article. I mean, if you're just talking about the theology proper, it's a mixed article, which is what we would call an article that is uh, available to be known both through nature and through Scripture. So it's a mixed article. It's one that's taught both in nature and in Scripture. Um, it's not a pure article. There are pure articles. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the gospel, uh, the incarnation. You can't know those things through nature, period. Uh, you, you, you just can't. Um, but, uh, you can know God through nature. You can know that God, uh, is a, uh, certain, is of a certain nature. 
through creation. Uh, this much is true in Romans 1, Romans 2, uh, and all throughout the Psalms. And you see explicit instances where motion is denied in God, movement or change is denied in God in places like James 1.17 especially, Malachi 3.6, Numbers 23, and the list could go on. So, you know, nobody's, nobody's saying that this is a system that is, is derived totally and exclusively from some other source other than Scripture. Um, and uh, it's, 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 it's obviously something that the Reformers and the post-Reformed thought was biblical. And their use of classical categories to talk about God most certainly did give them power. It most certainly did give them power. Um, y- 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 they didn't just use the biblical language, right? They were at liberty to use language, uh, extra biblical language. The, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. Um, and the words essence, nature, as it's applied to the doctrine of God. Um, quiddity. Uh, all of these crazy theological and philosophical terms that have been used throughout Reformed and post-Reformed history are not found in the Bible, but they're used to articulate the biblical concept. They're used to articulate something that is revealed in the Bible, namely God himself. Uh, and, and they're using that language to, to, to talk about God and to, to think about God. Okay, so it's not, you know, this is not something that's that's totally awe-biblical, um, even though uh, I think Dr. White is bordering on making it sound that way. Guided people's hearts was the Word of God. And Thomas fundamentally subjects the Word of God to philosophical categories that end up lowering the authority of the text and placing it under certain assumptions that come from other sources. Aristotle, whatever it might be. I would want to ask him to demonstrate that because if if he's getting that from Jeff Johnson's book, Jeff Johnson never demonstrates that. And his, his, his sourcing of Thomas is selective. Um, it, it's, it's nearsighted. That is, it's not grasping the whole context that's beyond particular, you know, certain quotes. And, you know, what, what is it? What's, what are the philosophical categories beyond that which you must assume in order to make anything intelligible, in order to make Scripture intelligible? Laws of logic a basic understanding of who God is, an assumption of who God is through creation, this context that Francis Turretin, a Reformed Orthodox theologian, said provides a context for understanding Scripture, for understanding the articles of faith. You know, what philosophical categories beyond those things are are you talking about? Or are you saying that those things are philosophical categories in and of themselves and should be rejected? I would then ask you, then how do you explain the intelligibility of scripture if you're going to re- if you're going to reject laws of logic if you're going to reject um some kind of basic or rudimentary understanding or assumption of who god is then you need to explain how scripture is intelligible 
when we when we talk about sola scriptura, we're not talking about nuda scriptura or solo scriptura, as if scripture stands in some relation or or in some all relational category abstracted from the world around us, as if it stands alone in terms of uh, how it's understood and in terms of how we know it. Remember, we're not just dealing with revelation. We're dealing with our knowledge of Revelation and coming to knowledge of what it says. And we're involved in the project of mining the raw material out of Scripture. So you're dealing with the epistemic situation as well. You have the ontological, which is the revelation. Then you have the epistemic situation, which is our coming to knowledge of the revelation. And ensuring that we go into that work of of apprehending revelation, of coming to knowledge of revelation we need to go into that situation with the right tools, with the right categories in hand. And that was why there was clearly a diminishment of focus upon Aquinas. You just, if, if you can read the Institutes and go, oh yeah, that's, there's, there's Calvin just giving us Aquinas over and over again. No, it's, it's, it's not. So I continue on. To answer your anecdote. Again, no one's claiming that that's happening. No one's claiming that there's some kind of comprehensive adoption of Thomistic theology in the Reformers or the post-Reform for that matter. Um, but I'm looking at the Oxford Handbook of the Reception of Aquinas, and it's most certainly the case that there is some reception of Aquinas in John Calvin, especially along the lines of natural theology. I wrote um, an essay on this. It's Part of it is available on my website, joshsummer.org, and there's a section on John Calvin that I think shows that there was some reception of natural theology, uh, a la Thomistic flavor. Again, but not original to Thomas. See, that's the what we're running into. When we say there's reception of Thomas, we're not saying that there's reception of things that are novel to Thomas. All right? We're just saying that Thomas articulated things that continued to be propagated by later generations, even among those who were considered the Reformed Orthodox. Low, high, you know, whatever. Anecdotally. Very few Reformed Thomists, if we can even call them that. I, I don't even, I, I, I see that as a self-contradictory phrase. Um, especially because as much as people try to read a streak of sola scriptura in here or something in there, Thomas was an orthodox, child of the church at the very time i would put the fourth lateran council as the time that roman catholicism itself starts uh once you get transubstantiation in place you now people put it in different places some people said trent some people said here i've just found fourth lateran council to be a useful starting point and thomas is that that is that is his soteriology, and no matter what you do, you cannot escape the impact. And I 
I do not understand. Maybe, maybe these individuals have just not, have not had to deal with as many converts from Catholicism as I have. Um, but you don't, you don't play footsie with that kind of stuff. If, if you could have learned anything from SES, that would have been that. Um, I agree with Dr. White on this point. Don't play footsie with transubstantiation. <laughs> I mean, reject where Thomas locates the substance accidents distinction. Um, I do. Many others do. And there's nothing necessarily flowing out of his doctrine of God, which is, again, how we're using the word Thomism here in this context. There's nothing flowing out of his doctrine of God or even his metaphysics proper that would make his view of the Eucharist necessary. It's just, it's not, it's not there. It's a way that you could take it. But again, we don't have to agree with Thomas on everything. We, you know, when, when Aristotle says, here are the laws of logic, and he lists three formal laws of logic, the law of non-contradiction, the law of identity, the law of excluded middle. I can say, yep, right on. That's, a, that's absolutely true. Even self-evident. And I don't have to agree with the rest of Aristotle. Even though Aristotle extrapolated from the laws of logic into some very wrong directions, Right. And you could say, well, it was his view of the laws of logic that got him to his, his theism or his hylomorphism, uh, his view of the eternality of matter and all of this. It was his view of the laws of logic that got him there. No, it wasn't. There were other factors at play, namely the fact that he was a darkened pagan. Um, but anyway, you, you, could, you, could do this, you could do this with literally anything. You could say, don't read Richard Baxter. The, as soon as you accept Richard Baxter, as soon as you, as soon as you get to reading him, you're flirting with pedo baptism. You may end up a, you may end up a, a, a Presbyterian. That's a serious, serious issue. No, we shouldn't argue like that. If, if someone does convert to Roman Catholicism, I'll tell you this: if someone does convert to Roman Catholicism because of the doctrine of God, which I would challenge that that even ever happens. There are so many other factors at play. But because of Thomas's metaphysics and doctrine of God alone, then it's user error, right? Let's not be Gnostics when it comes to truth just because it's coming out of someone we don't like, right? Uh, truth is truth no matter who says it. And uh, so if someone grasps some truth in Plato, Aristotle, you know, Dionysius, whoever, Bellarmine, whoever, Richard Baxter. And they follow that personality to a T because they, they've grown in their affinity toward them, then it's user error. That's not, the, that's not the fault of the truths that were articulated. When Richard Baxter or when... Uh, Let's use someone better. I, I, I don't like Baxter all that much. But when, but when someone like Brooks um, articulates the gospel, you know, and it's true. I don't say, oh, that's Brooks's gospel. If you're Brooksian, you're going to end up a paedo-baptist. No, get out of here with that. We don't, need, we don't need a reason like that. We don't need a reason like that. Anyway, let's, uh, let's continue. Very few Reformed Thomas, if we can call them that, have been influenced by Thomas's work directly, 
but by reformed authors old and new. Okay, then why would you even use the term Thomas? Well, again, I, I, I don't even think that that's an ideal term. I, I don't even use it, uh, except for in contexts like this, where usually when Thomism is invoked, it's, it's being invoked in order to deny classical theism, which Thomas believed and wrote about extensively. Um, but I don't, I don't use the word. In fact, I started the post by talking about classical metaphysics, classical Christian theism. I wasn't talking about Thomism. So I don't, I'm not sure where the, the, the goals got shifted, but uh, the goalposts, but um, uh, sure, don't use the word Thomism. The only reason I use that word ever is to navigate a conversation, and it's in order to make distinctions. If it's helpful in making a distinction, then sure, I'll use it. But what we believe doesn't have to be called Thomism. And, you know, I think... Others would readily grant that. But again, if you're not a paedo-baptist, you better not use the word Calvinism to describe your position. Um, and, 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 and if you became a Calvinist through some other author, like Charles Spurgeon, you better not use Calvinism. Why would you even use the word Calvinism? Again, these, these words and how we use them need to be understood. This is my experience, having been involved in this discussion the last five years, you speak of the deep truths of Reformed theology, sovereignty, and grace. What we believe about these great truths is entirely contingent upon what we believe about the sovereign and gracious God. And the Reformers understood this, but the Reformers did not then mean, did not then understand that to mean that they had to adopt Thomas's elevation of natural theology which is okay so <clears throat> huge shift in goalposts right here um that they didn't have to adopt thomas's elevation of natural theology but they did receive his doctrine of god um and they received it as orthodox theology proper this is beyond dispute if if he wants to dispute that then Sure, we'll, we'll pull the primary source material. And and I've done that to some extent already, but if you want the magnum opus, you go to, you go to uh, Richard Muller on that. The doctrine of God was received. Um, natural theology was received in part, not, not wholly, and uh, at least by the Reformers. I would say that it was nigh entirely received in post-Reformed, theology not in not not entirely in the sense that all of scholasticism came into the post-reformed realm but in terms of of understanding natural theology as a context uh as a bearer if you will of first principles by which we proceed in theology it's a prolegomena if you will then it was received in that way uh, and of course, they weren't standing there saying, this is Thomas's natural theology, just as we wouldn't be standing here saying, this is Thomas's natural theology. Unless, of course, we're just saying that, yeah, this is, this is, this is, we're, we're distinguishing this view of natural theology by use of Thomas's name, because this is what he wrote, and this is what he said, and we agree that this is true. It didn't originate with him. Um, but again, you know, this is not, this is, you know, he's, he's kind of shifted the goalpost to natural theology here. We were talking about the doctrine of God. 
So uh, let's let's go on and see what else he said. Which is really the key issue. Not natural revelation. Natural revelation and natural theology are not the same thing. As much as they get confused, they're not the same thing. Okay, but I'm sorry to stop this over and over and over again. But here... Here's what we okay when we when we talk about when we talk about biblical revelation when we talk about the revelation of scripture exegetical theology is a coming to knowledge of the revelation right and so we say that our theology you know is, is derived from biblical revelation um why is it different with natural revelation or general general revelation? Because natural theology has just classically been understood to be, you know, the getting the natural revelation into here. Theology is knowledge. It's a science. And when we're talking about natural revelation, we're talking about that which serves as the object of that science. And that's how those two things are distinguished. Natural theology is, to put it simply, us coming to knowledge of natural revelation, apprehension of natural revelation. That's how R.C. Sproul described it. That's how I think, uh, you know, if you look at, at Turretin and, and, and others, that's, that's, you know, is there a natural theology? Yes, there's a natural theology because God is known through what is made now it's through what is made is the revelation what and 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 the knowledge the act of knowledge must be distinguished from that revelation otherwise our knowing is identified with the revelation itself and you you collapse metaphysics and epistemology they become one and the same and what you have is subjectivism relativism because the outside world is contingent upon our our coming to knowledge of it. So we you have to make maintain a distinction between the revelation on the one hand and our coming to knowledge of that revelation, which has been called historically natural theology. The classical theism of the Reformation and post-Reformation, which largely received Thomas's metaphysics and prolegomena, Junius and Charnock provides an objective causal ground enabling many Christians to think more clearly about the great I am. But what it doesn't provide is a biblical ground. And that's my problem. And that's the problem I'm seeing with this. With this. So, when we're talking about historical theology, we're talking about how men learn and adopt certain views. All right. I mean, at very basic, we're talking about men learning and adopting certain views, right? Certain doctrines, and then passing those doctrines on to others. And we look back from our from our position in time, and we we inquire as to what those doctrines were, and how you know the understanding of man changed in relation to those doctrines, and so on. So. Making biblical foundations and metaphysical foundations mutually exclusive from one another, in in my view, is nonsensical. Um, unless you want to say that the Bible doesn't speak on metaphysics at all, 
or make any kind of metaphysical claims. But in my estimation, and in the estimation of many self-professed Thomists or Reformed Thomists, or Reformed Scholastics is probably the better term, is that there's overlap. Is that there is overlap. And so again, obviously what was received into Reformedom was understood to be, yeah, perhaps articles revealed through nature, but articles also most certainly repeated in Scripture and validated in Scripture and confirmed in Scripture. So why why he's making those two things mutually exclusive, I think, is is it's a common error. It's 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 something that's that's commonly being done right now. Well, if it's if it's metaphysical, it's not biblical. <laughs> that's kind of like saying, well, if it's a scientific fact, it's not a biblical fact. Well, uh, I mean, I think we would we would all hold to um, the scientific fact that lions exist, and I think we would all agree that scripture speaks about lions, and it does so authoritatively. Um, you see, here's the thing. Natural revelation, which, again, necessitates a particular metaphysics, uh, an understanding of being or an understanding of what is, is just as authoritative as Scripture. And, and, and that's because it comes from God. It comes from the same authoritative source. Now, we can be wrong in our natural theology. Theology, natural theology, isn't just as authoritative as Scripture, although if it's true, of course it is. That's why we say a confession of faith itself is not as authoritative as Scripture. But if I open the pages of this confession, I find something that's just lifted directly out of the pages of Scripture, well, then it's just as authoritative as Scripture is. It's speaking with the same voice. And so if, if objective truth, all of objective truth, whether it's, found in nature of scripture, comes from God and is what it is because of who God is, then the authority is the same across the board. These emphases um, and the people that are basically saying, if you do not adopt Thomas's position, then you're going to be this or you're going to be that. You go, but, I, but I'm not. And Calvin... And to, to, to clarify that, I would not tell someone that if you don't adopt Thomas's position, you're going to be this or that. But I would say that if you reject the Nicene Orthodoxy, uh, the, the received Orthodoxy of who God is and the biblical teaching of who God is, um, then there's no reason to think that, 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 that you are Orthodox. I'm sorry. But there's a standard for orthodoxy. If you go and you and you throw Nicaea out into the trash bin, um, there's where okay, <laughs> so you you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, so yes, if you don't affirm the immutability and simplicity of the Godhead, then you are out of bounds from Reformed orthodoxy. That's not me saying that. This is the chorus of Christians for the last two thousand years saying this. And the heresies tell the story. And, and it tells the heresies tell the story in terms of what Christians throughout history have thought about certain teachings about who God is. Sabellianism, Patripassianism, um, 
you know, now we're calling social Trinitarianism, uh, uh, you know, and, and we're linking that closely together with theistic personalism or theistic mutualism. All these isms, right, that are, that are taught by men are totally false when it comes to a right characterization of who God is, a right understanding of who God is. Um, another one would be, would be process theism. Uh, another one would be uh, uh, open theism. You know, all of these, all of these heresies tell a story, and the way that Christians interacted with those heresies and what they said about those heresies tell a story. And the, and 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 the consensus is the 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 reality is, is that nobody denied, uh, nobody denied divine simplicity. Nobody denied divine immutability. If you're talking about, you know. Christians as a as a Orthodox Christians as a collective whole in terms of what we have extant, um, what was settled, very little variation, very little variation, and, and if there was variation, it was it was usually in terms used and the license taken in using certain terms to illustrate a particular point, but it wasn't substantive. But there's little variation. Nobody's nobody's denying actus purus in God. Nobody's denying that God's pure actuality. Jeff Johnson does. 